So we are in a new series titled, Jesus Revealed. Jesus Revealed. And in this series, we're going to be looking, uh, working our way through the second chapter of the Gospel of John. Now you may be wondering, why are we starting with chapter 2 and not chapter 1? And that is a good question. And that's because back in 2017, a much younger, less bearded, less gray, Pastor Kyle preached five sermons through John chapter 1 in a series titled Jesus in John 1. You can find those uh, in, the, uh, in the history banks of the internet here on our website and go back there. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not saying they were very good, but they, it did happen in those five sermons. And so really this sermon here, this series is a continuation of the last series that was started six years ago as we continue on now into John chapter 2. Now, on a random side note, uh, this is not going to edify you, but I calculated that if I continue that same pace of one chapter of John every six years, then I'm going to finish John in the year 2137 at the age of 157. So we have a little ways to go, but we will get there someday. Since it's been six years, let me remind you what happened back in chapter 1. So John established in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is fully God. And then he shows that Jesus came to this earth to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist sees him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus begins his ministry by selecting some of his disciples. He doesn't get all of them in chapter 1, but he selects some of them. And two of those disciples are with John the Baptist. This is a different John. Uh, so we'll say John the Baptist and John the disciple, just to, to, just to clarify. So two disciples are with John the Baptist. They see Jesus. They see John declare him as the Lamb of God. And they're like, see a John the Baptist. And they go and leave John and go to, uh, to Jesus. And Jesus then sees them and he's like, uh, what are you seeking? In verse 38. And the two disciples are probably not quite sure what to say to him at that point. Because they simply say, uh, Jesus, uh, where are you staying? It's like a, when you run into the Savior of the, of the world, the one question, if you had, you're going to ask him, where are you staying? I, I don't know. They failed right there. But Jesus tells them, he says, come and you will see. And this idea of coming and seeing is what continues into chapter 2. Because chapter 2 is really the same week as chapter 1. It's just the very end of that week. And so the number of disciples, a number of them are now following Jesus, and, but they're still very new to things. They're intrigued about Jesus because they're following him. They're interested in him. They want to learn from him. But really, honestly, they don't know him very well yet. And so in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which we're going to be looking at today, Jesus takes his disciples to, of all places, a wedding feast. And something goes horribly wrong. Now, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to officiate and to be part of a number of different weddings, both here and at other churches. 
And I enjoy doing weddings because they're happy times. They can be stressful, but they're happy times. People joining their lives together. And thankfully, I've never had an issue at one of my weddings where there is a big wedding fail, like a big disaster. But I, I was just curious about what, what some other weddings have had issues with. And so I looked up wedding fails. I want to share just a, a few of those with you as we start out our message here. Um, and so here is uh, the first one. This one says, uh, she writes, I thought it was assumed that I, as the maid of honor, should catch the bouquet. I ended up fighting a 10-year-old for it. And after yelling, please, I'm 24, I decided to let her have it because she'll probably get married before me anyway. (laughs) Then her mom made her give it back to me. So that's a a wedding fail. Here, here's another one. My friend at her wedding on the beach, uh, had had her wedding at the beach, and during the ceremony, a gust of wind blew the minister's toupee into the ocean, and then a seagull ate it. Now, if that's true, that's really bad. I'm going to have to, I'm going to push it down here. Number three here, uh, this person says, I was photographing uh, a wedding and a groom showed up and he looked very confused and he didn't recognize anyone. Wrong groom, wrong church, wrong date. (laughs) Number four Uh, My cousin had a beautiful outdoor wedding. He was having trouble uh, uh, getting through his vows. At the same time, a mosquito landed on his head, and the bride smacked him. Of course, the guests couldn't see the mosquito, and so we all all sat there speechless. She's she's hitting him because he can't get through the vows. Number five... um, Phone went off in the middle of the ceremony, and a middle-aged priest was unamused, paused the ceremony, and started lecturing about etiquette on church service. Uh, It turns out it was his phone ringing. (laughs) Hold on a second here. And then last, uh, this one says, this is from the photographer, slipped and fell while photographing a wedding snapped a picture on the way down. And here is, here is that picture. You can see their faces there. Ah! Weddings can go wrong. And in our passage today, there's another less funny wedding fail that happens. And so let's go ahead and let's see what happens. We're going to be looking starting at verse 1. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Let's stop there. Now I'm going to be honest. When I read this for the first time this week, and then as I've read it in the past, that doesn't seem like a huge deal to me. In fact, at my wedding, now this is coming from someone who's about to go to a Southern Baptist seminary, my wedding didn't even have wine or alcohol. Uh, But even for the ones that do have alcohol at their wedding, it doesn't seem like a huge deal because people at weddings are pretty understanding these days. And so why is Jesus' mother so concerned that there's no wine? 
But since Jesus' mother is getting involved, it's likely that the people that are getting married were family, friends, or even relatives. And in that culture, it was a major, major issue to run out of wine. So the wedding feast was held in that time in the newlywed couple's home, and it lasted for a whole week. And so for during, during that time, the groom was responsible for all the provisions. And you thought your wedding was stressful, right? Think about having to do it for a week. In fact, the wedding host was legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. And so this was a huge problem to run out of wine because the family's honor and even they could be sued for not providing what they were supposed to. One pastor, uh, R. Kent Hughes, and he wrote a commentary on this, said this, I don't think we can overemphasize the distress in Mary's words in verse 3. They have no more wine. In Jewish wedding feasts, wine wine was essential. Not so guests could drink to excess, but because it was a symbol of exhilaration and celebration. It It was of such great importance that a lawsuit could be instituted if no wine was provided. Those who were behind the scenes at the little wedding in Cana were shattered by this breakdown in hospitality. Childhood dreams of the ideal wedding were about to dissolve into a nightmare. The drama of our text is very real. And so this is the situation that Jesus is brought into. Clearly, Mary is asking Jesus to do some sort of miracle because there were no Hannafords back there to run out to to grab bottles of wine to replenish. And so here's what Jesus says in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Let's stop and think about just what happened here now in our culture would it fly to call your mom woman no no most likely that would not work but in our culture or or in that culture that was a perfectly acceptable word you you just gotta you just gotta realize that different cultures different words here in fact as jesus was hanging on the cross he's about to die and he's handing off his mother to John, saying, John, take care of my mother. He says this in John 19. Uh, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. So he, he's not insulting her in this moment. This is an intimate, loving moment while Jesus is about to pass away there, and he's calling her woman. So, so clearly, this is an okay word to use. Now back to our passage, he then tells his mother that his hour has not yet come. And all throughout the Gospel of John, anytime that Jesus uses the word hour, what he's referring to is his crucifixion. So when he says that his hour has not come, what he's saying is that it is not time for the events to start leading up to his hour, to his crucifixion. 
And so these miracles that he would perform as it got closer to his hour led to his popularity, which then led to him eventually being crucified. So Jesus is essentially saying, um, hey, it's not my time to be in the spotlight. It's not my time to do things that are going to make me well known. Now, there must have been some sort of exchange between Jesus and his mother that was not recorded between verse 4 and 5. All we know is that Jesus said this, and then in verse 5, then Jesus or his mother says, do whatever he tells you. But there must have been something else. Maybe it was that look that moms give their kids. You don't need words. You just need that look. Okay, I got it. Maybe it was this unwritten understanding. Maybe there were some words that were not recorded in this passage. But whatever happened, Mary then tells the servants, assuming that Jesus is going to do something, do whatever he tells you. So this is what happens next. Now, there were six stone jars, uh, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So there's six stone jars there, as the passage says, 20 to 30 gallons each. So these are large jars. Just to give you a perspective, uh, the average wine bottle holds, uh, I had to look it up, 750 milliliters. So I did a little math. I got it wrong the first time, so hopefully I didn't get it wrong this time. But uh, that's about one-fifth of a gallon. And so these stone jars would hold between 600 and 900 bottles of wine all filled up, all six of them. So Jesus tells them, to fill up the jars. And then verse 8, And he said to them, Now draw out some, uh, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though his servants who had drawn the water knew. At some point, between the water going in and then coming out, it changed into wine. Now I'm going to need a little help here just to demonstrate what's happened. And so, um, Rick, you want to help me out? Okay, come on up here. So we have here some water. And I should have probably have gotten two areas to hold here. So I'll just hold this for you. So what I need you to do is to draw some water and fill it in here. Actually, you have two hands, so you can handle it. There you go. All right, so just go ahead and start filling up the jar. So while he's doing that, let's, uh, let's see. Now, that in, in, in real, you know, in the story, this was going to happen six times, and it'd be a lot bigger, but all right, good job. You'd have, you would have made a good first century servant. <laughs> so that's good. We'll, we'll leave it at like that. Okay, so at that point then, what happens? Then the servants take the water and they pour it into a cup. I'll give you a clean cup here. And so let's go ahead and pour some water in. All right, good. And you can just go ahead and set that down over there. So we have some, some well, it's still looking like water, but uh, now you need to take it to the master of ceremony. So that'd be your wife in this situation here. 
So go ahead and take it to her. And uh, just, uh, Renee, if you can just tell me what it tastes like. So she is tasting the water for those that cannot see. What does it taste like? It tastes like water. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Rick. You're, you're done here. Have a seat. It's still water. So clearly, would we all agree that water doesn't just turn into wine by itself? Given time, if we waited long enough, would this water just naturally convert into wine? And this is a miracle. This is a miracle. Some people try to explain it. Well, you know, this happened. No, this is a miracle of Jesus that without even doing anything, simply by his words and, and instructions, he, can, he turned the molecules of water into wine. But listen, it's, even, it's not just a miracle. It's a high-quality miracle. Let's see what happens next. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first! And when people have, dr- have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. And so the wedding coordinator here gets a taste of that wine and is blown away. And he pulls the bridegroom aside and says, well, hey, wow, normally we do that switcheroo where they get the good stuff and then the bad stuff, but, but you're saving the best until last. So in, in other words, Jesus' wine, this is not on your teaching sheets, but Jesus' wine is greater than any other wine. And then the passage closes by saying that it was the first of Jesus' signs. What he's referring to there is that that the Gospel of John highlights seven different signs or miracles that Jesus performs throughout the book. And so the first one is this one, that where he turns the water into wine. The last one that we'll eventually see will be Lazarus being raised from the the dead. And so for the rest of the time, we're going to stop and just think about a very important question, and that is, So what? So what's the big deal with Jesus turning water into wine? And and how does that impact us now in the 21st century? And I want to, first of all, before I even start to get more into the application, I want to, first of all, address what I call the 21st century elephant in the room. And that is, why wine? I mean, of all the miracles that Jesus could do, why turn something into wine that becomes such a hot topic many, many years later? I want to take you back to Sunday, January 25th, 2009. It was a big TV night because 19 Kids and Counting was airing the wedding episode of Josh and Anna Duggar. This was back before it turned out that he was uh, not do- before he was arrested and getting into all sorts of trouble. So I watched that episode, 
And at some point during the episode, I can't remember when, but at some point they interview Anna's father about why they, they don't have any wine at their wedding. And if you know the Duggars, or if you don't know, they're, they're good fundamentalists. So they are strongly, strongly against drinking alcohol. But how do you reconcile being 100% against alcohol and then Jesus in his very first miracle turning water into wine? And Anna's father said that the wine that Jesus created was not alcoholic. Said it was grape juice. That's how Jesus could do such a miracle. Now, the reality is, is that there's no evidence that the wine in the first century A.D. was non-alcoholic or any time before that. In fact, just by the response of the master of the feast there, it's pretty clear that, that the wine did have some sort of alcohol. But if it was alcoholic, then why was Jesus creating it? And I want to give you one of the big reasons why in this context. And I'll be talking about a little bit later on, on, how, uh, on a lot of the symbolism in here. But one of the big reasons why is because in the Old Testament, wine symbolized joy. I'm not going to read them, uh, but multiple passages throughout the Old Testament associate wine with joyful times. And it's not talking about drunkenness, but about simply referring to happy times together, about uh, the, the, the crops being finished. And when you have enough crops to, to make the wine, then th- those are good times as you're celebrating together. So it's these happy times together. Now, once a week, my wife and I, as I've shared before, we go out on what we call a mini date. So we, we leave for one hour. We leave our kids, uh, we'll just say, with someone. someone so so that since it's being recorded, that someone may be a, a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old, but they're safe, sort of. And we drive up to Manchester, just, just a few minutes away from our house, and we go get bubble tea together. And why bubble tea, you may ask? It's because both my wife and I like it. But we've done this so often now, we, we do it once a week, done it for a year or two now, that any time I see bubble tea, I associate bubble tea with happy times with my wife. And, and that, that's sort of like, like a hint at what the wine, the, those happy times together, the wine, points to uh, being around and the happiness together. Now, I get that wine in excess is a sticky subject for, for many people in the 21st century. But that's because of the excess. Because people become addicted to alcohol through the excess of it. People destroy their life because of alcohol, because of excess. And the reality is, though, that anything in excess is usually bad. I heard on the radio this week that someone died from drinking too much water at one time. Water! We need water to survive. We're made up of water. But too much of it at one time is bad. And just about too much of anything at one time is bad, including alcohol. So by turning water into wine, listen, Jesus is in no way condoning 
the excessive use of alcohol. Because Jesus makes it very clear in the New Testament, multiple places here. In the New Testament, we're told, first of all, do not get drunk. Do not get drunk, Ephesians 5.18. And then we're also shown that drunkenness is associated with immorality. And, and they list a number of different types of immorality, of sinfulness. And drunkenness is one of those. And so putting all of this together, it would be incorrect of me to say that alcohol in and of itself, wine in and of itself, is sin. But I can definitely say that getting drunk is a sin. We can also say, and I will add, that we need to use common sense here. So if you struggle, or even possibly struggle, with alcoholism, then, then listen, whether it's a sin or not, you should stay far, far away from it. If you or someone around you is even remotely tempted or struggles with alcohol, then you should stay far, far away from it. And nowadays, we have plenty of other drinks that we can use to associate happiness with. So we don't need wine or alcohol just uh, like they, they did in the Old Testament times. I, last night, I put together a list of some of the things. We have specialty coffees. We have all sorts of teas and sweet teas. We have hot chocolate. We have milkshakes, Slurpees. And most importantly, we have eggnog. And many other things. So listen, I, I say that in jest, but listen, don't ruin your life or the life of someone else just because you can. That's selfish. That's selfish. So returning to our question now, so what? what? What else can we learn from this story? And as I said in the beginning, th- this takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in the first week with his disciples. So the disciples are still learning who he is. And in turn, the author of John, John, John the disciple, uh, is revealing, not only showing how it's being revealed to the disciples, but is revealing to us who Jesus is. And so I want to give you very quickly, I want to give you five different ways that Jesus is revealed in this passage. So here's the first one. Jesus is revealed or his power is revealed. We've already seen that, that water doesn't naturally turn into wine. I'm not even going to have Renee taste it again because nothing's changed between now and a few minutes ago. It's only possible through a miracle. But this is no problem for someone who created the universe. In chapter 1, which we saw six years ago, John says, All things, speaking of Jesus, all things were made through him and uh, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, everything that was made was made through him. And so changing water into wine, that's child's play to Jesus. But that just gives a very small hint of the power of Jesus. 
And the rest of the book leading up to that seventh miracle where Lazarus is raised from the dead just shows over and over again in those seven signs throughout John of the power of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, church, let's think about this. If we follow Jesus, the one who can change water into wine, the one through whom the entire world was created, who holds all things together, then what do we have to fear? Because he's in control. And he is the one who holds all things in his hand. He is the powerful one. Second thing about Jesus, Jesus' fulfillment is revealed. His fulfillment is revealed. So I won't go into this too much, but there is a lot of symbolism in this passage. For example, the, the jars there, the ceremonial jars, represent Old Testament law or the, the rituals of the, of the old law. There's six of them, which in the Old Testament often symbolizes a number of not there yet or imperfection. The jars are empty, not full, pointing to the emptiness of those rituals. But then Jesus steps in and he fills the jars up, not with water, but with wine, pointing to joy, filling them with joy. And then, uh, we'll talk about this in a moment, but he doesn't just fill it up partway, but how, how much does he have it filled up? All the way to the brim. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And apart from Jesus, the law is empty. But in Jesus, there is joy. And I would add that this is true for any belief system, even believing in even some form of Christianity. If, if, uh, like if you follow Christianity, but, but don't follow Jesus, that's emptiness. Man apart from Jesus is empty. Religion apart from Jesus is empty. Only in Jesus will we find true life and joy. And for those that are here today that have never put their faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. Turn to him and give him your life and learn to find true joy in him. Third thing that's revealed is Jesus' compassion is revealed. If you think about this, isn't it a strange place to be performing a miracle? Why here of all places? And I said before, it's likely a distant relative or at least a friend. And Jesus didn't have to help him or them. He didn't have to help them, but he chose to help them. But even more, he helped them and then some. He didn't just give them a little wine. He gave them a lot of wine. He filled it up to the brim. Not just one jar, but six of them. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. I read that most likely they didn't drink all of that. Most likely some of that was then used and sold for a profit later as a wedding gift for them. And church, this isn't a one-time thing for Jesus. Jesus continuously shows that he overflows with compassion and mercy and love and grace to everyone. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, But God, being 
okay in mercy. Is that what he says? No, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Not just a little mercy for us, but he is rich in mercy. Now, normally at our house, we're a little skimpy when it comes to candy for the kids. Each time that candy's given out, they make it home, and then very shortly after, the candy disappears into the candy abyss, and the kids don't see it again because we don't want them eating a bunch and a bunch of candy. We, as a family, we as parents are not rich in candy. But at Island Pond Baptist Church, on Sunday, October 19th, 2023, we saw an example of what it means to be rich in candy. Kids went about with nothing at first, and they walked out with huge bags of candy and cotton candy. I just grabbed the first picture I could see. But listen, as... As uh, Christians, Jesus Christ is richly merciful and compassionate to every one of us. If you think you've messed up too much this week, guess what? Not too much for our rich Savior who's rich in mercy. If you think you've abandoned him one too many times this year, guess what? Not too many times for our rich Savior. So he is rich in compassion and love and mercy to us. Fourth, Jesus' joy is revealed. So as I said before, wine points to and symbolizes joy in the Old Testament. And Jesus took these empty jars that represented empty rituals and he filled them up with joy. So joy is not just smiling all the time and pretending you're happy and have no problems. Joy is that combination of contentment and peace and confidence in the midst of problems. Because through Jesus, our biggest problem has been solved. So if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a one-way ticket to eternity with God in heaven and the new earth. And if you've not done that, then it's not too late if, you hear my, if you're hearing my voice. Turn to him and give him your life and find his joy that he's giving freely. Now, this isn't going to make you happy 100% of the time right now, but that should give you confidence as you go through difficult times in life, knowing that he is with you and has taken care of your biggest problem. Finally, Jesus' love for marriage is revealed. I think it's not an accident that his first miracle was at a wedding. And in the New Testament, we see that marriage is a way that two people point others to God. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. We're, as, as Christians, as a Christ, in a Christian marriage, we're simply living that out. And so I want to encourage you, to have the same regard for your marriage, whether it's current marriage or future marriage. Are you honoring Christ in your marriage? Are you raising your kids to follow God? Are you pointing them towards God? Are you treating your spouse with love and respect 
So may we all treat marriage with reverence and holiness. And so as I close, I want to ask you, what about you? So we've seen the power of Jesus revealed. We've seen Him fulfill the law. We've seen His compassion and the joy that, he's, that He offers. And so how should we respond? And in a sermon in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor, uh, comments on this passage talking about the, the, the wine being filled up or the water being filled up to the brim. And he says this. These are great words here. When you're told to believe in him, believe in him to the brim. When you're told to love him, love him to the brim. When you're commanded to serve him, serve him up to the brim. See, he deserves nothing less. So have you given him your life? Have you turned to him? Not just one part of it, but have you given him every part of your life? Are you seeking holiness in your life? Not just in a little way, but all the way. Are you trusting in him? Not just partly, but for everything. We serve a God who is powerful and compassionate and a giver of joy. And so let's serve him with all of our hearts. Let's go ahead and spend a moment now in prayer, and then we're going to go into a time of communion.